So we're recording now. Oh, okay. Right now, as of right now. Yes, I am wearing pants, so it's okay. <laughs> it's it's audio, so. Oh, it's only audio. Oh. It's a podcast. That's oh, I forgot all about that. It's a podcast. <laughs> Hi, I'm Bailey, and I'm Serena. Welcome to Creative Baggage, a podcast that gets into the nitty gritty of pursuing an artistic career. In this episode, we talk to our former professor, Dr. Michael Klein, about navigating his career as a young theorist and pianist. Through a series of fun anecdotes, he teaches us the value in improvising your next step, whether it be on or off stage. We are honored to have him as our teacher and guest. So basically, what we talk about in the podcast, um, we're kind of trying to show people the other side of what it's like to pursue a career in the arts. Because I think for a lot of people, they say, oh, you're so lucky, like, pursue something creative and, you know, fun and fulfilling, but it's a very tough field. Um, So we're just sharing people's stories and, you know, whatever really comes up. Yeah. I love this. All right. So I'm going to tell everyone your age. Oh my God. The twenties, they sucked. (laughs) It is so hard to break in to music. It is so, so hard. So I, I was a pianist. I wasn't a theorist. Oh my God. If if you had told me when I was 22, you're going to teach theory one day, I'd have hit you. I mean, I mean, (laughs) it's just like the last thing I wanted to do. So, um, I started by teaching piano um, and it took a long time to get enough students to make it pay. Um, And most of the students were horrible because, you know, no one knows who you are. And so you get all this, oh, we have these stories. Oh my God. This one uh, girl, I won't say her name. She's probably like 52 now. So, you know, (laughs) this is a long time ago. But um, I remember a lesson where she came in and she was playing simple pieces. I had had her for a year. And every time I opened up a new piece and they only had like eight notes in them, she would look at it and say, confusing. And I would say, all right, well, let's go note by note. What's the first note? And it was a C. And I said, and what finger? And she said, first finger. And I said, okay, play a C with your first finger. And she took her index finger and played a C. And I said, that was great, except that was your second finger. Can I have you use your thumb, your first finger to play the C? Okay. So she puts her thumb on the D and she plays a D. And I was like, okay, that was great. You used your thumb. Now we need you to use your thumb on the C. And she went back and forth between the, the, her you know, index finger on the C and her thumb on a D for like 15 minutes. And every student I had, was like that and it was just like <laughs> nuts so oh my god i just wanted to get out of teaching but i kept doing it uh on the other hand i oh go ahead say that again that's how they play piano in the future you're just behind yeah <laughs> it's probably how she plays the piano right now <laughs> so uh, although i did have one student every once in a while you get uh um i had one great student who was a, actually a psychiatrist uh, which was helpful because I really needed one. And so I would ask her for advice and things. Um, but um, I had an adult student who owned a restaurant and he was uh, pretty wealthy. So often 
I, I think I charged like $20 a lesson. He would often give me a $100 bill. And I would say, I, I can't make change for a $100 bill. And he'd say, well, that's okay, keep it. <laughs> I'd say, all right, so this is good for five lessons then. But the next week he'd pay me again. And so I was getting paid $100 per lesson to like show him like where to put his hands on the piano. It was, it was great. <laughs> so I also um, accompanied uh, a lot. Oh my God, this is why I know so much flute repertoire. I accompanied yeah. like every piece. There was a flutist in the orchestra who nabbed me as her accompanist and I accompanied all her students and her. And then she had like a, she had guest artists come. Um, I can't remember her name, but she's semi-famous flutist. Um, Carol Winsense is one of them that I played for. Anyway, so uh, that was good. So I got to play, you know, kind of professionally and get paid. And then soon I was breaking into that, but I just never was making more than like $12,000 a year. Mm. And um, then I decided I, I got to make more money. So um, I worked for Mitch Miller. You've never heard of Mitch Miller, have you? You no. haven't. He, um, if, if this were 30 years ago, you'd be like, oh my God, you work for Mitch Miller. He um, had a TV show in the 50s called Sing Along with Mitch. And he was a pops conductor and I was his personal assistant for a while. So I did that while I was teaching piano and also accompanying. And then I was the copy boy for the uh, orchestra, for the management. I made copies. I did the copies. There's an old SNL skit about I make the copies. That was me, copy boy. That's why even now, I'm sorry, I'm just going on. You can just edit all of no, this out. No, okay, this all right, all right. So um, even now, like the copy machine at school, which no one's allowed to touch anymore because of COVID, which is fine. Like people will, people will go in, I'll go in and it'll say, oh, it says it needs toner. What do I do? Oh my God, how stupid can you be? You open this thing up, you pull out the toner, you shake it, because there's still more toner in there. Then you put it back in, you switch the switch, you close this up, and look, it works. Like they're, oh my God, you're a genius. No, I just made copies for five years of my life. I know how every copy machine works. Isn't that great? So I did so many things like that um, to make a living. And I just couldn't, it's either feast or, it was either feast or famine. So I either had so much to do that I didn't know how I would learn all the music I needed to learn. Or I would go like a month without any gigs. Mm. And I just got tired of it. So after 10 years of that, <laughs> I decided, well, I'll get my DMA in piano. And we lived in Buffalo at the time. So, um, and I went to Eastman. I have to say that so that I can say I went to a good school. I went to East, I went to East, I went to the Eastman School of Music um, and where I got two degrees in piano. So, um, oh my God, that was hell on earth. So, um, uh, so I decided I would get my DMA in piano and, but I needed to pick a teacher. So I went to each of the, there were three piano teachers. I went to all three of their, um, they each gave a faculty recital over the course of a year. And um, I hope that they're not, that they don't ever hear your podcast. I thought all about all of them. I can play better than this person. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not taking lessons from this person. No way. One of them was just like a banger, just like bang the shit out of the piano. Can I say shit? They banged the shit out of the piano. Another one like missed a million notes. And the other one was really stiff. And I was just like, no, no, I'm not, I'm not doing it. 
Right. So I walked into the graduate school for the, for music, and I said, "What is your quickest doctorate?" And they said, <laughs> "Music theory." And I said, "Sign me up." And they were like, "Hold it, hold it, hold it! You can't just sign up. You have to like apply." And I was like, "Well, how hard can it be? Just like." Give me the application. So I fill out the application. They said, you need a paper. I'm like, oh, God, I need a paper. So I went home that night, and overnight I wrote uh, a kind of a paper on a piece by Brahms. It was like <laughs> maybe five pages long. It was handwritten because I was like, why does it have to be typed? I mean, <laughs> and I handed it in, and they accepted me. And I had no idea that their theory department was like really good. It had three excellent theorists in it. And I, I was like, you know, I just took classes with them and didn't find out until later that they were like for real, like they published. And, and I was like, oh, oops. Um, but then, even then I just wanted to be a pianist and I thought, oh, I'll get a job at a college and uh, teach piano and teach theory. And my advisor was like, no, you're going to go into theory and be a theorist at a real school. And so I was like, okay, I guess that's what I'm going to do. And so that's what I did. Boy, was that bad advice. Oh, <laughs> theory. Oh my God. How brutal. So yeah, that's the whole story. Yeah. Well, kind of the secret, oh my God, I shouldn't say this, but the kind of secret about theory, um, if you talk to professional musicians, they never think about theory. Like I, you know, <laughs> yeah. they, they don't, it doesn't, it's not a thing that occurs to them. Um, I mean, real, I hate to say this, but real musicians think about making shapes, you know, I'm thinking about making, you know, arches and thinking about, you know, loud, soft, you know, fast, slow. Is it dramatic? Is it not dramatic? They don't think like, oh my God, I'm on an augmented six chord. And now that means I have to do this. <laughs> they just don't think that way. And um, just like, since I have lots of stories, a story about that when I was a theorist, when I was becoming a theorist in my doing my PhD, I was in a piano trio. And uh, now I knew theory, oh, theory. And we had an argument about how a phrase should go. I remember it was in the Brahms C major trio. And um, like the violinist was like, oh no, the phrase goes here. And then, you know, the cellist, no, no, it goes to here. And I was like, well, I can tell you theoretically why the phrase goes like to you know, measure eight. And they were like, we don't want to know. And I was like, you don't want to know. There's a good reason why the phrase goes to measure eight. It's because, no, no, don't tell us. They didn't, they just didn't want to know at all. And they were orchestra musicians and they were professional, but they didn't want to know the theory reason why it should go to measure eight instead of measure six or measure four. They were just like, we want to feel where the phrase goes and that's where the phrase goes. And you know, no one, no one got up while we were performing and shouted, Hey dummies, it should be measure eight is where the phrase goes. Oh my God. You know, that doesn't happen. So. So do you feel like, cause I do get in lessons that I take like a, a teacher asserting that the phrase really should go here because of X, Y, Z. Do yeah. you feel like there are, a lot of different options for how a phrase can go and still sound right and good. Yeah, definitely. I think there's lots and lots of ways you can play music. If you want to use theory and say, ooh, there's a cadence here, 
But oh my God, can you imagine how bad a performance would be if someone decided to bring out every cadence? This is how I'm going to shape my performance. Every cadence, I'm just going to head for that cadence. <laughs> Woohoo! Like it would just be so bad. It would be just terrible. So yeah, there's there's lots of ways it can go, and uh, I'm really because I you know because I was a pianist professionally until I was in my 30s. Um, I used intuition all the time, and I still do when I sit down to play. Um, I think you're both friends of mine on Facebook, so I've been posting, you know, me playing. I never, I never, I never think, well, what key am I in? Like, you know, what, how should I shape, I think, how should I shape this? But I don't think, oh, right, because of the secondary dominant, I'm going to do this thing. No, no, I just experiment. Try this. No, that didn't work. Try that. No, that didn't work. Try that. Ooh, I like that. That's good. <laughs> so, you know, uh, just send this to the Society for Music Theory, please. And <laughs> just take away, have them take away my secret theory decoder ring. <laughs> Great. Well, like the first day of class when you introduced yourself to us our freshman year, you said, one day you're going to realize that you hate music and none of this matters and then they're going to hand you your doctorate. <laughs> I told you that. Yeah. Oh you know, I live by it. I, I, <laughs> I hate music and the closer I get to quitting, I'm like, oh my God, I really should apply. <laughs> but this is it. I'm almost there. Well, I mean, uh, other words of wisdom, you know, so... You play in master class and you're super nervous, or at least I used to be, mm -hmm. you know, super nervous or master class. You play a degree recital, you're super nervous, at, or at least I was when I had to play. You play for, you know, even your friends and because they're musicians, you're nervous again. When you go out into the real world, you stop being nervous. And it's because you know you're playing for people who just want to be entertained. They just want to hear music. Mm -hmm. and they don't care if you phrased it to measure eight or measure six or measure four. They actually don't care. I, I remember a concert I did where I played, uh, I, I actually kind of improvised the, the first whole first movement of the Chopin third piano sonata because I had a memory slip in like bar four. And then I was just like, okay, I'm just gonna have to make stuff up. And I made stuff up until I got to where I could remember where I was. And I made stuff up again until I could remember where I was. And at the end, people were like, oh, my God, that was so great. I'm like, they had no idea. They had no idea. And, yeah. and that was very freeing because real people, they just want to hear music. And they, they don't care if you thought about theory or if you thought about your embouchure or if you thought about, you know, any of the stuff that they torture you with in music school. I'm not saying you shouldn't be tortured and that you shouldn't know it. But, you know, for real, you know, you know, you it, when you audition for an orchestra, you're going to be super nervous. I mean, because you have to be flawless um, for that first audition or you won't get past the, the first round. Yes, that's nerve wracking. But like playing a flute recital in front of real people, that's a lot different than playing a flute recital in front of your teacher and all your friends and faculty where you're like, oh shit, like my hands are shaking and, you know, yeah. I can't catch my breath and I'm phrasing every two notes because I can't breathe, you know. Yeah, um, something I found really helpful for that was like detachment. Because I was able, not that I'm an expert at this and sometimes I still get nervous, but I've been able to 
train my brain to remember what it feels like to not care. And I try my very best to not like apply that to situations where I absolutely need to care. And it totally did a 180 in my playing because I cared so much that I was like, oh my God, like I have to do it right. And so I was tense and my phrases were very blocky and I was like, it was just very intense and I was playing sharp. And then I was like, you know what? I don't care about this anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. My wife has a similar story. When she was little, uh, playing the violin, she said she used to have um, memory slips all the time. Mm -hmm. And she had one after another after another. Like every concert, she had a memory slip, and it was like started to get her down. And then one day, she just decided, well, what the? She probably didn't say fuck because, first of all, she's Japanese. And second of all, she was like eight. <laughs> but no, really. And one day she just decided, well, I'm going to have a memory slip. Who cares? And she went out and she didn't have a memory slip and she played better. And then she was like, oh, I guess the, the trick is to not worry about it. And she said she's never worried about playing since then. She just goes out, does her thing. And, you know, people like it or they don't. If they don't like it, can I say fuck them? If they don't like it, I, I just said that, didn't I? You can plot it out. Uh, if they don't like it, bleep. And, you know, you know, so. Yeah. No, I feel like playing for normal people who are not classically trained musicians is such a different experience. Like, I mean, my parents are now classically trained by me just because they <laughs> right. know enough of my concerts over and like master classes and lessons that they know a little bit. But I mean, I came home from school and there was a storm recently. So our power was out for like four days and we had nothing to do, no electronics. Like, what am I going to do? So they were like, show us what you learned at Temple about playing the piano. So I had taken piano lessons for what, like seven, 10 years when I was a kid, but I, I would like kick the piano <laughs> when I was supposed to practice and just not do it. Um, but so I like played some kumbaya and whatever stuff that they teach you in secondary piano. And then I was just like, banging on the piano playing some random chords and my parents were like wow what song is that I'm like literally nothing <laughs> literally nothing I made it up yeah. kind of like Michael Klein did 30 years ago when he played this show <laughs> I was like, you know what it's like once you know how music works like you can just make something that sounds like something yeah and people don't know they don't know yeah yeah you just need a couple of tricks up your sleeve and you can sit in a restaurant for a half hour and just you know Yep. Long. <laughs> you can also like repeat phrases over and over and they don't know, you know, and then just kind of move on and play the next phrase a hundred times. And <laughs> yeah, they don't, they don't know. It's, I'm not, I'm not saying you should do that, but I mean, you know. Well, it takes the pressure off. Cause I think we live being in the world of classical music all the time really screws up your head and alters what reality is. And we forget that like in reality, Nobody, except for like the 300 people, say maybe there are 500 to 1,000 people in Philadelphia who actually know about what you're playing compared to the millions of people that live in this city. Right. That are actually <laughs> here you play. Yeah. Um, and like, it's like not good to not know your stuff, but it becomes such a psychological barrier, I think, to pretend that what happens at conservatories and at universities is the real world. <laughs> yeah it's far from it my other thought about this is like 
when am I going to give a flute recital that most of the audience members aren't made up of other classical musicians? That's a good question. Well, yeah. Because well, people, I don't, I can't think of enough people who would want to go see a flute recital who's not classically trained. Right. Well, I mean, um, just just thinking along those lines. So I, I every year I give some pre-concert lectures for the... Um, Philadelphia Chamber Music Society. And, you know, I, I'm talking to people who theoretically know a lot about classical music. And all the time after I give a lecture, people will come up and say, I don't hear any of that when I listen to a concert. And I say, that's fine. You don't have to. So, you know, what makes uh, people really great at their instrument usually is that they're perfectionists. They're, they're type A personalities and they can't let things go, all right? So uh, it turns out perfectionists uh, tend to um, suffer from depression or anxiety because there's no such thing as depression. And you can, you can practice a phrase a thousand times and you still think you suck at it, right? Mm -hmm. And so then you get all depressed and you're like, oh my God, I'm, I just suck, I'm horrible. And, and you play it a million times and then you go into your lesson and they only reinforce that, they, or they could. And they say, oh my God, you play this so out of tune. I can't believe it. And you're like, oh my God, I'm so bad. I practiced like six hours a day and I still went in and flubbed it up. And then you go to orchestra and the conductor picks on you and says, you know, Serena, you're out of tune. And you're like, oh my God. And I, and that literally happened to me and I cried once. <laughs> oh, really? Yes, of course. So normal people, they're, I mean, perfectionists turn out to be like 10% of, of people. Normal people, I don't want to say normal, but normal people, they don't concentrate as much as musicians do on getting something that right, you know, getting it absolutely perfect. And it's that same thing of, of wanting it to be perfect that makes us all anxious and crazy and depressed. And that's why a lot of the people you run into who taught you, they also suffer from anxiety and depression and all these, you know, horrible things that go along with being a perfectionist. So it's really important to learn how to let go and say, you know what? A thousand times in this phrase was enough. And now I'm going on. Um, I mean, that's, and it's hard. It's really hard to, it, it really is, but you just have to, you know, when I first started doing those recordings, um, it was because the COVID thing was happening and mm -hmm. I couldn't, um, it was hard for me to concentrate on preparing for teaching. I was really depressed about what was happening in the country, that we couldn't leave. And I was like, you know what? I used to be a pianist. Why don't I go back to being a pianist again? And I was so much happier playing the piano. And mm. I thought, well, I'll just record, you know, I, I even remember the last movement of that same sonata, the Chopin sonata. Yeah. <laughs> I missed like, for me, I knew, how, I knew what I missed. I missed like a hundred notes probably. And I was like, well, I got to record this again. And then something in me said, no, just post it. It doesn't matter. People like it, they like it. If they don't like it, they don't. And um, some people wrote to me like, I, I didn't hear the notes that you missed. Like, and I was like, how could you not hear it? Like you're a pianist. How could you? you know, often you're the only one that knows. And then everything that I've posted since then, you know, I play it once. And if it's like, if I just, totally crash and burn. I'm like, no, I'm not posting that. But if I don't crash and burn, then I just post it. And 
you know, if people don't like it, they don't have to listen. And if they do like it, then, then they listen. And, you know, it doesn't really matter. Thank mm-hmm. you.